Hello, OCD family community. Why did the cookie go to the doctor? Any guesses? Because, you see, it was feeling crummy. (laughs) Oh, that's right, fam. I went there because you know how they say laughter is the best medicine, yeah? But also, we're sitting down today with psychiatrist Dr. Ryan Vidrine, which is pretty great because not only does his scope of medicine specialize in mental health, but he also specializes in OCD. So what are we waiting for? Because we've got questions, he's got a lot of helpful insight, and we are here for it. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. So my oldest, Jack, he's in fourth grade now, and he's really into jokes. He's also really into irony and deciphering puns and all that jazz. So like the first week of school, he came home and he said, hey, mom, Did you know that sometimes when someone has to pee, they say they're taking a leak? I mean, every day is an opportunity for learning, especially in fourth grade. Recently, he was bringing up sex quite a bit, trying to fish for some information, and we talk pretty directly with our kids in an age-appropriate manner. But we talk to them directly about things, and so when he was bringing up sex and looking at my face to gauge a reaction, I first asked him, Do you know what sex means, bud? I'd love to hear more about your thinking. And he responded with, I'm pretty sure it has to do with girls, maybe from New York City. (laughs) I mean, sure, we can include them. Let's do it. Oh, but anyway, there's never a dull moment and we get to hear a lot of jokes around the house. Like, when does a doctor get mad? Cassis, anyone? Because he's run out of patience. Don't you love it? I mean, I don't know where he gets them, honestly, but they're cute and they're pretty innocent for now. And hey, laughing and leaning into positive value-driven activities can really help support our mental health. No argument there. But today we're going to be discussing medicine a bit more broadly. In this, our part one of a two-part episode where we're talking with esteemed Bay Area psychiatrist, Dr. Ryan Vidrine. And this is really special because we're going to be talking about a bunch of stuff. But in particular, we're going to be talking about medication support and its role in the treatment of OCD. So for this first episode, we're really going to lay a really nice foundation regarding some common questions and concerns that arise when we're considering medication as a tool for treatment. Now, I'll point out for any of our new fam here. I am a fan of medication support when needed for the treatment of OCD. In fact, I even pointed out as one of the treatments that quench for OCD along with exposure and response prevention and inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy. But admittedly, medicine in and of itself 
it carries its own stigma. And we come to the table with different experiences, different fears, different upbringings that have either embraced or shamed the use of medication support for even some medical issues, let alone feelings. Sometimes feeling stuff gets kind of this fluff attitude, like you must be weak or lazy if you quote unquote need medication. And I don't agree with that. But it's also not a magic wand. And so no matter where you fall on that continuum, I'm glad you're here today. Because you know what? I'm not actually here to change your mind one way or another. What I am here for is giving space and time for us to safely engage, to communicate a bit more about medication, particularly when it comes to our OCD fam. So I'm so grateful to Ryan for his time and knowledge. And for those of you that maybe even have your own psychiatrist working with you or your loved one, you know how precious and brief a psychiatrist's time tends to be. So seriously, a big thank you to the good doc for sharing his time and expertise. Now, I want to tell you a bit more about Ryan, but also let me just remind us all, Ryan, though a psychiatrist and a specialist in OCD treatment, he is not your doctor. And I, I'm not your therapist. So this isn't a medical consult. It's not therapy. It's not treatment. But I am hopeful that this will illuminate some curiosity or provide some potential strategies for you or your loved one's treatment teams in terms of how to bring the greatest amount of hope to you or your loved one's treatment or recovery. Okay, so Ryan. Ryan is an interventional psychiatrist. He is up in the San Francisco Bay Area with expertise in treating OCD and anxiety disorders. He has years of experience delivering medication, psychotherapy, and brain stimulation treatments, as well as experience and training with ketamine and psychedelic-assisted therapies. And I will say, for those curious, we are going to dive into topics like ketamine and psychedelics more next week in our part two, because we know it's on the mind of folks. There's a lot of questions coming up around if and when different treatments will be available and just lots of chatter to discuss. So today in part one, we're going to be talking foundational pieces to medication support. And then we'll be talking about some of the broader hot topics and questions surrounding medications and treatment, as well as modalities like ICBT, which again is inference-based CBT for our newer fam, and how it all fits into the fold. But for now, we're going to keep it to foundational pieces for part one. And so with that, I do want to provide a trigger warning. So when we're talking about certain medications and when we're talking about different mental health disorders, the subject of suicide does come up. And toward the end of our time together, we are going to touch briefly on suicidal ideation, black box warnings, and differentiating suicidal thoughts or ideation from harm-based OCD themes. In fact, I believe I saw earlier this week that the International OCD Foundation did a research roundtable on their YouTube channel about the differences between suicidal ideation and suicidal obsessions, which is really just such an important topic to discuss. So we're going to be talking about that. You can check out the Research Roundtable at IOCDF's YouTube channel. It's a continued conversation, and it's very relevant to the OCD population. And while both can occur, you can feel suicidal and have suicidal obsessions, it really, really is an important distinction worth taking some time to understand better. And so we will be discussing the differences, and I want to advise the fam here to listen with discretion and keep that in mind. 
Additionally, because we aren't your treatment providers, and this isn't treatment, if you or your loved one is experiencing any suicidal thoughts, please do go to your nearest emergency room, call 911 or your country's emergency code. Or here in the States, you can also dial 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Okay, so without further ado, let's get to chatting with Ryan. Welcome to the OCD Family Podcast, Ryan. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Yes, I'm happy to have you. And honestly, it is such a difficult thing, I think, sometimes to be able to steal some time with a psychiatrist. There's a shortage of psychiatrists, especially when we go into like OCD or OCD-related disorders, because the understanding And correct me if I'm wrong here, but the general population of treating psychiatrists, so very, very knowledgeable, not downplaying that at all, do not have a specific understanding of OCD. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a chapter in psychiatric training and residency, and it's very focused on contamination at best. Most of the permutations we all see every day are rarely addressed. And unless you're working with the population frequently, you you don't really get much about it. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly the same on the therapist side. It's like a slide in a class in grad school years ago. Right. And depending on where you're at in your journey, but it's like unless you're going to a school where like if you're a Baylor, you better know what it is because (laughs) Eric Storch, Dr. Caitlin Pizzietti is like, y'all, if you don't know, I don't even know what to say. But most people aren't going in with that kind of awareness. And so we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how you came in even to OCD, but would love to hear, and if you're willing to share with the fam here, what really piqued your interest and led to you being a psychiatrist that really does understand, and I'm sure you treat more than OCD, but also have the specialty in this area? Yeah. I was really interested in like brain treatments, brain stimulation. I was on a path possibly to even neurosurgery for a while and got really intrigued by this overlap of interventional psychiatry with things like TMS and ketamine and some of these other brain circuit based options that were being developed. And OCD was one of the disorders that we knew the most about circuitry. And so it was one of the things being studied in that arena the most. And so that initially piqued my interest. And then I started working in the OCD clinic at UCSF where I did my residency training. And it was fun. And I, I mean this with all of the maximum sympathy towards patients, but it's it's a different, it's a place where you can be creative in the best interest of the patient. And while all the themes are very repetitive over and over again, they look so different in each individual, right? In the way that it comes out. And so it's it's never worrying. I'm always seeing something different. And I think that I found I could be myself most in session with OCD patients because of the nature of the disorder, the nature of the treatment that we know is recommended. And it felt really well suited to my personal style of helping to push people and to be free and get messy and live with the results and and learn from it and move on and, and that kind of thing. And so... It feels like a place that's free and creative and it's really treatable. So it's nice. Like people get better often, more often than not. And and that's cool to see. Yeah, I think that's such a great point because for all the different ways that OCD can really present and manifest to each individual person, which is really 
as broad as that person's imagination is going to be. And so that varies absolutely from person to person, even within people. And so it's distressing. So again, we're not making light of that, but how unique it can present the function when you uncover all that shit, the function is very consistent, very formulaic in how OCD functions. And so it is so interesting, but it also allows, because we're unique individuals, it allows for unique treatment plans that address the same core thing. We can use our research, we can use our degrees and our expertise to zoom in on those things. But it is more creative because we're dealing with creative people. We're dealing with individuals that aren't cookie cutter versions of themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of anxiety disorders can be like this, but I think particularly OCD, almost everyone kind of knows something about depression or has heard this or that. But routinely, I have people who don't know much about OCD who have the disorder. And it's one of the things that's so satisfying sometimes just one session of education and they make huge leaps forward, right? And they come back and they're like, I've, I've been doing this. I finally get it. It clicks. And so I think that's really cool. I like just even just psychoeducation with patients. Yeah, I would agree with that too, from my perspective, because there are sometimes people coming in such a chronic, very exhausted and overwhelmed state, feeling fairly hopeless at times. And just a just a pivot. It's not even like a huge shift, but a pivot in understanding that this is OCD at work to understanding the psychoeducation, as you said, can sometimes be enough to be like, this is different. This it like radically, radically can change people's lives. And I feel like in mental health, rarely do we get an opportunity to have such an impact with just that insight, that information, right? Because we can have insight into anxiety and depression, but we're still also at the mercy a lot of times of the anxiety and depression. But what's really cool about OCD is resolving some of the, whether it's inferential confusion and doubt, or whether we're learning about the learning in the brain and the inhibitory model, Like it can make such a dramatic difference. So I agree. It's really, really cool to be able to do this work. And I find it really interesting, actually, that for the research, because our research in scope, I would say, is limited in terms of amount of treatment it can offer. But the amount that it was also able to blueprint from a neurological perspective is really what brought you in than to psychiatry instead of neurosurgeon because there was enough research there already laying a foundation for you to go, okay, and be able to join in on that. So I think that's really cool because for as much as we still want to research, research, research and bring more hope to folks, it was farther along. OCD was further along in being able to have some of those foundational aspects as compared to some other mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I'm a neuroscience nerd, and that that was one of the ways that it certainly piqued interest. And it's a long way to go, but I think if you look at some of these novel treatments, deep brain stimulation, TMS, some of these things, OCD is one of the disorders that is one of the only things that it has approvals for and this and that. And so in certain ways, it's a little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah. So go team OCD and thank you for all the researchers (laughs) that are doing the work and all the people. It takes all parts. It takes the psychiatrist being able to have a better understanding. It takes the therapist. It takes the patient, the families, and it takes the researchers. And, And so that collaboration 
does not happen in a silo. Like you have to be able to really collaborate. And so that that's huge. So as we enter into this conversation today about medication, which can be, it can be a tough conversation at times because we all come into understanding OCD from different points in the journey. A lot of times people are coming in a triage state of this is so incredibly distressing and sometimes have been living with it for decades that they have all of that that they're bringing in. But also we all have our different perspectives and we have our different family values, etc. that has been taught or foundational to us when it comes to medication and the use of medication, whether we need or should be dependent or would be dependent on medication. So medication can be a tricky situation, whether we're talking about a headache, whether or not I'm going to take a Tylenol. No, I am not going to take a Tylenol. Or we're talking about an SSRI or even getting up to the level of something like a SGA, a second generation antipsychotic. And so, first of all, can you speak to a little bit what your experience is having somebody come in, maybe they've never had medication before, and help talk with our family here about some of the understood concerns and also helping us establish some realistic expectations on what we should be considering when we're thinking about something like medication support? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see that a lot, and a lot of people come in either early on and really hesitant and wondering if it's the right time or in total distress, it's way past time. They probably should have tried one, but they're really scared to do so. And a lot of it is myths. A lot of it is things they've read online or in message boards or heard from a friend and a worry about this means I'll be on meds forever comes up all the time. The other probably more common thing I hear is, but will it change who I am? Will it change my personality? I don't want to change who I am with a medication. So I hear that a lot. And yeah, I, I practice psychiatry from an acceptance, commitment, therapy or act framework. And so I view the medications as a tool, just one tool among many others that can be helpful in you moving towards your values. I talk with patients. I do not ever view starting a medication as a life sentence to medication. So yeah, taking what we know from data, which is if you use meds and you get better, but you pull back too soon. There is some evidence that people sometimes have more relapses overall. So there's a balance. But some of those studies, too, don't account for all the other things that someone might be doing when they're getting better. Right. So oftentimes they're looking at like these meds in isolation are really controlled different groups. Right. Right. And might have a patient who started a med, got into ERP therapy, is taking mindfulness classes and started exercising and, and eating more healthy all at the same time. Right. So it's, it's always individual. I usually will tell patients, look, let's shoot to get you where you want to be. It's yeah. not zero anxiety. That's not necessarily zero compulsions, but it's I'm doing pretty much everything I want most of the time. And I make choices based on what I care about, not out of fear. And once we're there, let's shoot for, depending on the person, six months, nine months to a year, somewhere in that mark. If we have that consistently being the case, cool, let's pull back a little, see how it goes for a few months, pull back again. If we challenge going on or off meds two, three times and it always doesn't end well, it always been great, then, then maybe we talk about staying on something or staying on something for five years before we think about it again. Yeah. 
But but yeah, I have a lot of patients who get off meds. They tend to be the people who've done the therapy. A lot of people who hop on and off at different periods of times. A pandemic happens, a family member dies, something like that, and right. they just need it. And then I have some that, that come back and say, look, I went off. I can do it. It's just a lot harder and it's easier. Can Is there any reason I can't just keep taking this? And the answer that I would give is that there are no large reproducible consistent studies that have found, here's the negative thing that will happen to you if you keep taking this med. Philosophically, I think we should always challenge, do you need this? Let's not be on something you don't really need. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's small associations and things that will pop up in one study here and there, and then eventually doesn't seem to carry on to the broader population. So if you're tolerating a med fine and it's helpful, there's nothing really strongly that I can point to and say, you, you really need to get off of it because X, Y, or Z. So it's like the old adage of if it's not broken then you don't have to necessarily change anything. But if it's not broken and you feel pretty good and you think like I have all these different things, activities I can engage in that I wasn't able to before because I was so overwhelmed and other things that I think are also helping carry and move me forward. So I may not need all of whatever I have here. It is fair to experiment with that and go, okay, so if you don't need the training wheel in this situation to keep you stable, then let's see how it goes without training wheels. Yeah. In conversation with your psychiatrist. (laughs) In conversation. Yes. Please do not stop medication abruptly. And let's just remind folks, you are not talking to your psychiatrist right now. You're not talking to your therapist. We're having a chitty chat. We're just trying to shine some light on this, but talk to your doctor because there can be a lot of complicating factors coming on and going off of different medications, depending on what other medications you're on, all those different things. So yes, do consult with a doctor if you're going to take off those training wheels. And yeah, I think it's a good, like, I think the intention is good, particularly with this population, right? It's again, in the spirit of let's try, let's see, let's get information and adjust and live with what happens with it. Meds for OCD are notoriously slow acting, right? And depending on the level of distress of the person coming in, we're notoriously impatient with them. And so oftentimes we may get up to a dose to stabilize someone that we didn't actually have to get up to. Had we just waited three total months, right? We would have gotten that improvement eventually, but, but that's, that's a long time to wait. And so oftentimes the dose that someone is stable on, gets stabilized on, is not necessarily the dose they need in maintenance, the therapy work, right? That's skills are required. And then even I, I always tell patients just living in a better, more stable place where you beat OCD more often most days. Right. That's the thing that happens, right? That's you realizing, oh, I don't actually have to attend to this thing like I felt like I did. I don't have to fully engage. I don't have to give in. And so you're not the same anymore after right. that period. And your ability to do that on your own, you have a template now that you can access a little more easily. So I think it makes sense. Again, not repetitive, indefinite trials off meds that they always end poorly, but certainly first or second time. Yeah, I, I think it's reasonable. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting and ironic when it comes to our OCD population in particular, one of the things you described in that process of the initial med consult and exploring the option of medication support as a part of your treatment, you talked about like not wanting to be driven by the fear, the fear that this is going to happen or that's going to happen. Well, what's so prominent in OCD is that people are dealing with, whether we conceptualize this as intrusive thoughts or obsessional doubts, 
they're dealing with such intrusive, distressing uh, that they are driven by fear. That's the natural response, the safety behavior, the compulsion is born out of trying to cope with a very difficult, scary, often distressing situation. And so in particular for our population, if you come in, maybe growing up in a family where medicine was not something you guys used, or maybe you overused it. It was like, what? You're feeling weird. You're upset about this. Take a Tylenol or something. Because I think both exist. <laughs> it's interesting because our particular population, when we're thinking about our OCD family community, that's already going to be a very triggering, sensitive area, a raw area when they're coming into treatment. And so not letting fear decide whether or not you go up or down, but also going, how do I actually feel right now in the present? Not getting ahead of ourselves, but just like really trying to take that in the present. And so sometimes you can come down. Another piece to that on the flip side is sometimes maybe we have a little bit of the distress, the intensity, the noise around OCD come down, but we haven't optimized it yet. And one of the things that you and I talked about before we recorded is how historically a lot of times folks with OCD do respond better to higher levels of SSRIs. That being said, based on how you metabolize medication and a number of other factors or interacting drugs, you not need that high of a dose. So it is one of those things where we can at face value read and see the research of, oh yeah, it seems like the efficacy of SSRIs, for example, are going to be more helpful at a higher dose, but that's not always the case. That being said, if we have some sticker shock about even being on medication, let alone the dosage amount, that can be a real hard pill to swallow, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I try to be thoughtful about the timing of bringing that fact up and the person. And it's not always necessarily the first visit or immediately, like you said, if, if we're even just being on a medication is a hard conversation to even entertain, then that's certainly not going to be the most helpful fact. And you know, I don't think that's that's misleading or anything. It's a, it's a thing we know that there is a proportion of patients that need that, but there is a large proportion of patients that don't. And as a clinician, I have not been able to predict with much success who that's going to be. And it doesn't seem to matter on the severity or not. I am frequently surprised by someone in a lot of distress where with dose one or two of Flexipro, they come back like wildly better. And so that's usually what I tell patients. It might be the case that we will have to go to these higher doses, but that is not a rule that applies broadly to everyone. And I have lots of patients that find success on low doses. In these studies too, we're shooting for a specific Y box, right? A score is like, this means that that was a positive response to this trial. Yeah. In practical, you know, we're not shooting for zero again, zero anxiety or any of these things. We're looking for this sweet spot. And there's hints in the research that like, if you work through this hard spot with therapy, that result may be a little longer lasting than if you just make it go away with the pill. All right. And so the goal that I would talk about with patients is let's bring the noise down to a level that you can work through. Right. So not right. take it away. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes they come back and they're like, it's gone. This is great. But the dose needed to just get you to a working place that then you can take that into therapy with might be lower than a dose needed to turn obsessions off completely or something like that or, or even approximate that. Yeah, no. And that's a really good point. And it, it just the thing I was thinking about as you were saying that was 
it really just shows how subjective it is to a multitude of factors of how your body is going to metabolize medication. I've heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, I've heard that if you or someone in your family tends to metabolize or do well with a certain medication, that typically people in your genetic circle are probably going to respond a little better to that. It's not always a foolproof thing, but it's a good inclination. And also, we come in to treatment, we come into really a lot of aspects of life with certain expectations, whether we realize it or not. And so coming in with the expectation that if I do go on medication, this should solve it or maybe turn things off completely, or that if I'm on a higher dose, that means I must be real cray cray, right? Like I must have a real problem versus a low dose. We put our own meaning and project that on some of these things. And it's so different person to person. So it really points out the importance of leaning in and trusting your doctor to help set what is a reasonable expectation. Because it's going to vary widely based on our upbringing, based on our bodies, our biology, our neurology. And so building that trust with a psychiatrist is going to be really important. Yeah, and I think as a psychiatrist, I try to frequently ask someone, particularly when they've communicated some concern around meds, right, is like you said, what does medication even mean to you? And like, what is it? Let me know before we even get down this road, like, what is it that you're bothered by? What do you think if you have to use this? And I, I think we don't, we're not really necessarily trained to ask all those questions in a medication eval early on. Right. But I think super important and it can totally inform the direction your conversation goes from there and not waste time. But I also think that psychiatrists, perhaps that don't work a lot with anxiety or OCD, expectation setting is not always done ideally. So I often will talk to patients with depression sometimes in a different way than I'm talking with my anxiety and OCD patients. And you can look at this and be like, yeah, you'll be fine. These are fine. Most people tolerate them. Don't worry about it. But with OCD and anxiety disorders, I think it's helpful to actually generally set the expectations so that they... Right. So what I tell people is there's a bunch of things. These are the common things you might feel, right? Mild headaches, mild nausea, crampy, upset stomach. You might actually feel more often than not a little bit more restless and anxious on the first couple of days that you take this as your body adjusts to it. These are all normal things. Some people say I feel foggy. Some people say I feel a little tired. Some people say, I don't know. I just I don't feel totally like myself. So you might have one or two of those things, it's not likely you'll have all of them, but you'll probably have something. You will experience a thing you probably don't love. Right. I'm telling you that's normal, so you don't have to freak out too much. If it's tolerable, most of the time it's going to get better. And so if you feel a thing, give it three or four days. You can always let me know. But my answer is going to probably be the same, which is, is it tolerable? It's probably going to get better. And if it's better in three or four days, even a little bit, it'll probably be more better even in another few days. Right. right. And so. I think setting that up, you're going to have a thing because people with OCD and, and other anxiety disorders, you have honed your system to detect any little nuance threat, right? The, yeah. With being wired with your GI system and the, the gut brain connection. So my OCD patients can tell you who the content of fat in their food by the way that it feels in a way I certainly can't do, um, right. right? So normal sensations are experienced in a more zoomed in fashion. And so they'll feel a thing. It won't be a horrible thing. It's a normal experience. Expect it to get better. 
So that's one thing I try to really do with those patients that I find is helpful to them. They like knowing, they like having some control in that aspect. And then the other thing that I would say I will sometimes do is what I, I call like modified informed consent with patients. So you have to have a little bit of a trust relationship with them. And it's good if you're in contact with either a family member or their therapist as well. But the attentional system in OCD yeah. is critical, right? Like whether or not we engage with a thought, whether or not we pay attention to a thought makes a huge difference. And I'll sometimes do an exercise or I have the patient, okay, like let's stare at your fingertip mm -hmm. and we'll do a few minutes. And like, I want you to notice everything you can notice about any sensation, color, temperature, right? And if you do this, you can start to feel your finger pinking up. You can notice your pulse gets stronger. Maybe it feels warmer, right? And so we look at, oh, wow, you've done all of these changes in your body just with your attention and really nothing else. Um, and so I'll sometimes use that before we're talking about starting a med. And so I let them know, look, let's not pay attention to the things. If you give them attention, you'll grow just like you did that sensation in your finger. And I'll tell you the common things I strongly most often will recommend they don't read the labels, they don't read the message boards, and they defer the counseling from the pharmacist. <laughs> Pharmacists historically terrify the shit out of people. <laughs> but, Which is you know, because they ask you, do you have any questions? You're like, yes, will this happen? They're like, yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I say, look, if a, if a weird thing happens or something that feels severe and extreme that I didn't mention to you, you can ask me, you can bring it up to your therapist. They can ask me, you can tell if it, whatever, like you don't need to go out alone, but let's not plant all these seeds because you read everything that might be possible in the world. Yeah. I mean, when you were starting and you were like, this isn't necessarily like on everybody's med assessment protocol, I was thinking, I bet there are so many people listening going, what I would give for my psychiatrist to take that time to even ask what I think about it? Because, you know, and this is not a criticism overall, but I think it's really hard, especially for folks that are going through some really extreme symptom presentations. So maybe they've recently been hospitalized. Maybe they don't have any kind of prior relationship or experience with a psychiatrist. And now they're trying to get out of inpatient or they're trying to step down to a lower level of care. And the chart, what you came in with is pretty extreme. And so what the doctor is going to be taking into account is pretty extreme. And sometimes it's hard even for folks to feel heard by the doctor because, I mean, for you guys, you guys have to take into account what that extreme was and how it's hopefully trending in a less intense direction. But also, I think because families and because patients are a lot of times unaware or don't know what expectation they should or ought to have, that can be a really tricky road to navigate together. So I love that you do that. And you're right. Not every psychiatrist is going to be aware of OCD or even have that as a part of their assessment. Doesn't mean they're a bad psychiatrist if they don't have it. But it's also an opportunity for you in that time be able to say, hey, also, whether they ask it or not, this is how I feel about that. Like, offer that information. You can still bring it, even if they don't ask for it, because this is your time, too. It's your time with them. Yes, they have certain things that they are going to need to go through, but you also have an opportunity to be like, and our family's not a med family, and I don't know what to do with this. So bring that in there, too. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing people will say in that question is, like you said, 
well, my family doesn't talk about mental health or my, my mom or my dad or whoever, they're not really cool with meds. That's great. Great. Cool. Well, let me tell you about them and let's bring them to the next appointment so they can ask all their questions to me. And then hopefully they'll feel better about this. Right. And so it's, it's a good avenue to bring other people into the mix as well. Yeah. It's interesting. I once, this was in a different area of the field of mental health, but I went to a training and one of my mentors, Dr. Barbara Stroud, was mentioning sex is kind of like culture. Everybody has it, but we don't talk about it a lot, right? And it's like meds is kind of like sex and culture too, right? Like we all, mental health is something like sex and culture. How we cope is something like sex and culture. We all have it. But not communicating about it doesn't make it go away or not having heard the information about it doesn't mean that there is no more information about it. And so when it comes to something as tricky as our physical health, mental health, medication, it's really important to be able to have those conversations with reputable sources. Now, Similar, and we talked a little bit about this before, Ryan, but similar in ICBT, how we can use these logic and our reasoning, we can hear a lot of different things and get our educations that way. This celebrity said this, my dad had this experience, my ex-boyfriend's sister, who is like a hot mess because she took medication at a young age, they attribute so much meaning to these different pieces that come into their story. And so it really is important to be able to build that relationship. But sometimes you're going into that meeting, Ryan, with the disadvantage of being the face of a medical system, of a profession where we don't already have trust. And that can happen, that can pop up, whether it's within our family culture or other cultures. We can have this, yeah, I do need a reputable source. I don't find you to be reputable, Doc. <laughs> Sorry for all your training, but what do you know, right? And so how do you suggest building some of those bridges? Because I'm sure that you have experienced that. I know I've experienced that. I'm not even the doctor. And it's like people come in and tell me all that. I'm like, okay, well, have that conversation with them. <laughs> Chat with them about your concerns. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. That's happening, I find, more and more than it used to. I think it's happening more post-COVID, honestly. There was just so much widespread confusion and misinformation and mental health and medical stuff just got so polarized that, yeah, I, I find it happening more than it used to happen. So that's that's interesting. I try to talk about meds last. So I spend the bulk of my initial assessment anyway, asking the kind of questions we talk about. I, I will also often ask with my OCD patients, can you, I know this is a hard question maybe, but can you just like tell me what you understand about OCD and treatment and how we tackle it? Like that can be really enlightening, even when they've been working with a therapist or not. And then I usually will follow that up with, well, here's like the few things I would add. Here's how I see it. And here's a little bit of how I approach it. And here's what we'll do along the way. And so I spend a lot of time, I think, building trust on my expertise with the disorder, how I think about things, how they think about things. And usually I'm assessing things like, yeah, their, their function in the world and what are they doing therapy wise and what other normal life stuff would be useful or ways we could challenge their OCD before I ever get to meds. And that way, that's hopefully they've kind of like, okay, this guy actually knows what he's talking about or this isn't some quack or it's cool that he asks these things. So I think you just have to 
get savvy with rapport building and be a human in the room. Connect, connect. I don't know if you've seen these commercials. My husband and I have been binge watching Vanderpump Rules. Everybody judge as you need to. It is garbage and we love it. But there is this commercial that drives us nuts where there will be like a person and they'll pop up and the doctor and the person are saying the same script and they're like, oh, wow, you think just like me. Right. And, And they come in and it's like, yeah, there's not a connection piece. It's so irritating to watch ads like that. And really what you're speaking to is building a relationship. And a lot of times I think people feel like they don't have time to build a relationship with any other doctors, not just psychiatry, like specialists they may see or even general practitioners because, you know, they're on a 15 minute billing window or whatever it is. We understand that from the logistics side of it, they feel it from the impact of you're in, you're out. Sometimes you're waiting a really long time, you're in, you're out. Right. And so it really speaks to the importance of having a relationship. But a relationship, if we're talking about true relationship, is reciprocal. So, yes, there's part of that onus on the doctor hearing you and you really feeling heard. But you also have to go in with the posture and a willingness to build relationship from your standpoint. Even if you're like, I feel so incredibly uncomfortable about the thought of meds. Well, then I'm glad that you're talking with the doctor. It still doesn't even mean you have to walk out with a script and take medication. You're opening a posture to having a conversation. Start there. That's a start, right? And so building a relationship does go two ways. Yes, the doctors are busy, but we're busy too. And we get in there and we do or don't say what we're thinking and feeling. And I get that it's really hard. But part of the responsibility in relationship is we both participate. And so participating in those conversations, even if you don't like what was said or don't agree, you don't have to agree. You do get the choice to disagree. Your doctor is your doctor, but you are in charge of your health care. You choose whether you go to the appointment or not. You choose whether you fill a prescription or not. And so those, those are really important pieces. Something I find that I I talk with folks about, too, is, and of course, I am very clear that I am not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. So anytime we're talking about medication, the absolute piece that's going to be included is, I'm not a doctor. Please talk to your doctor about this. But I could suggest maybe having a chat with a doctor because I see people coping and self-medicating in a lot of different ways. And we all do it in our own ways, probably, if we really want to broaden the definition. But what I see, and, and it was interesting after I used to live in L.A., live in the Midwest part of the United States now. And what I see is people will be very open to leaning into essential oils. They will be very open to leaning into magnesium or colloidal silver. I don't even know the things. Cannabis. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely cannabis. They might even do something like yoga. It could look a lot of different ways. And one of the things that I will say is, because usually the concern is I don't want to have to be dependent on a medication. But the reality is you're kind of dependent on your thing that you're leaning into anyway. So is it worth having a conversation about, is this thing working for you in the way that's going to be best for your health overall? It's working for you in your own ways. You get a lot out of it, okay? So I'm not coming after oil people or anything like that. Like, enjoy that. And yes, there can be some benefits you enjoy from that. 
But is it optimizing what's going on here for you? Another one that I find coming up even outside of cannabis is CBD, which is not regulated and can vary widely. But people are like, no, 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 I would never do it. Medication. But I'm going to totally do the CBD. What's the difference, really? <laughs> right? You know, uh, what's the difference? <laughs> I mean, I agree with your approach. Like if you, if you use an essential oil and you tell me you don't have any more OCD problems, great. You know, that I, I'm down with that. I think that as a species, we do a lot of things that are avoided, right? Or a lot of things that allow us to kind of go on with whatever we're doing and make it feel fine. Yeah. And we know that's a core part of OCD experiential avoidance and sometimes making the narrative so that we can do the thing that doesn't trigger us as much kind of like a way around it, a little bit of an excuse, right? To keep going, not necessarily consciously or intentionally, but right. I think you have to try to help patients just be really honest, right? Not in a I got you way, you're lying or something like that. But like, hey, do you think that you're using that because it just feels like it's fulfilling with your friends? It's heightening the things that you guys do in a great way. Or are you using that because you don't want to feel a thing, right? Or are you using that because you don't think you could be comfortable with them if you didn't, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll ask those kind of questions. How much of it sometimes is it a habit, right? Are you doing this thing just because you always do it versus, oh, I, I'm really wanting to enjoy this experience from this thing. So having them just be really, really honest about that, I guess. I'm trying to get back to your question. I don't know if I answered it, but. <laughs> well, I think in yes, and I think like, yes, that answers it. And and there's probably it's going to vary from person to person. Uh, it's a tool, right? It's that a was, tool. I think, the- yes. Well, and you made a really good point. You're never going to win people over by going, that's ridiculous. This is bullcrap where you're coming from. Not recommended in Building Trust 101, right? <laughs> it's funny. I just saw a, a meme on Facebook. I love myself a good meme. And the meme was something to the effect of like, when you start out a phrase, so don't take this personally, I'm absolutely 100% ready and prepared and already taken it personally, right? This is, oh, we're going to build trust, but that happens sometimes. We get a sense of feeling shame and shame is a huge driver in mental health at large and medical, honestly. When we talk about some different medical problems that people might not go get more information about because there's so much shame. And so it is it's an important thing to think about how we're interacting our tone that goes for therapists, too. That goes for family and it goes for ourselves, the way we talk to ourselves, because that's probably the biggest culprit of shame, right, is how we talk to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, And I think the other piece that is popping into my head about you're in control. It's always your choice if you're going to take a thing or not. You have these questions you want to get answered. You should always ask them. And at the end of the day, there's a way in which anxiety makes us want to step into shoes we can't always fill, right? So like I, I'll have a patient oftentimes who is either like by no means even past college yet or they're in a field that's totally unrelated, right? And they're like, well, I'm going to go home and I need to do all my reading. <laughs> Yeah. And which I love, you know, I love that line. So I'm like, well, what are you going to read? Tell me about this. Oh, like, please tell me. Um, <laughs> Since you're here with me, the doctor, I want to see if WebMD agrees with you. <laughs> yeah. And I can see, you know, with all the virtual appointments now, I, I can see people, they're Googling or whatever. And like, <laughs> hey, I'm right here, you get to ask, you're paid me, you can ask me. So I think like I certainly could go do my reading about whatever's wrong with my car when I bring it in. But we don't have the time to do that. You can't be an expert in everything. And I don't know shit about cars. So like me either. So you have to go at some point 
say I'm going to someone with some expertise and that alone is at least a little bit of trust, not all of it by any stretch, but right. letting go of that and not let the anxiety step in and make you under the impression that you have the expertise or the training to always understand that reading or review that research or whatnot. Yeah. But coming back, even having a conversation, sometimes for folks, they're like, oh, but it's so hard to get in. And blah, blah, blah. I'm like, call the nurse's line. You've already had, hopefully I'm not like giving the advice here. The nurses was like, damn you, that's why this is ringing off the hook. But I'm like, if you're already on a medication and you just had an appointment, you don't even necessarily need to have another big appointment. Sometimes all we want is some clarification that I understand this is normal, right? Or I understand how I'm supposed to be tapering on this or whatever the thing is. Call your nurse's line and get some clarification. They'll talk to the doctor. The doctor will clarify for them. And sometimes even the doctor will call and be like, I can see the misunderstanding. And I think it's it's so different than I wanted to call in. <laughs> and sure. But that's part of our ethical duty. You know, whether you're a therapist, whether you're a doctor, is making sure that we are giving and linking people to the right access and the right information. Yeah. And so you brought up the interesting point of, Sometimes and often the middle person, the middle doctor here is the pharmacist, right? And so you're like, yeah. Pharmacists don't come after me. <laughs> don't come after me either, pharmacist. I, sometimes people talk to their pharmacist about so much more than they will talk to their actual doctor about the things the pharmacists and the bartenders can tell us. Man. But they understand, actually, rather than me even like characterizing this, why don't I ask you, can you present the distinctions between the psychiatrist and the pharmacist? Because both you're going to be talking about your medication with, right? But how do we decipher? Because sometimes they're giving pharmacists extra information they didn't give you. Sometimes maybe you're getting information the pharmacist didn't get, but it can complicate things. Yeah. And I would, and like, like every field, there's pharmacists who are freaking awesome, right? Amazing. And others who are like, operating in sort of an algorithmic way that are like missing the point. Right? And that happens with every field and profession and everything. So I think in terms of like medication interactions and putting meds together or medication alternatives when a thing isn't covered by their insurance, but we need to get right, like navigating the system around any kind of medications, like they are incredibly helpful. If you need something compounded, right, where like it doesn't come in this dose, but we got to figure out how to get you that because it seems to work like really hopeful a lot of the time. And I, I see this a lot with like pharmacy students or early people, right? Or because they're working in like the mental health hospital. Uh, the hospital. Yeah. What they're doing is they're reading a flag that popped up on a computer and then they'll tell that, well, do you know these two meds can cause serotonin syndrome, right? Now my OCD patient is terrified. Panicked. And so they, they're not always, they don't always have the same degree of clinical experience and training with the human and the practice and the person or in any one encounter that they're just dispensing a med, they don't have the clinical experience with that patient and they're not asking them a bunch of clinical questions. It's not necessarily appropriate, right? They've already done that with a doctor. They're just picking up their med. And so a lot of the things that show up as possible flags or possible warnings or things are laughable at times because they're so far-fetched and unlikely to be an issue, right? And so right. then we do all backtracking with the patient. So I think it's nice but it's increasingly hard in the current state of the healthcare system. But it's nice when you know a pharmacist well, or you have just like with therapists, if you have kind of relationships and you can go to them, it's nice when pharmacists reach out to a doctor first and say, hey, what about this? Do you think this thing? And they've actually like looked at it and read it 
So I don't know the, the, the healthcare system as strained as it is and as wild and shitty as it can be, I think makes these tensions between all of these different departments unfortunate. But yeah, I think they're a good resource if you're double checking something. They're a good resource when you're trying to figure out the system. And they're a good check on us at times to make sure we didn't send the wild dose that we didn't mean to send or hit a wrong key or anything. And so like, that's really nice. But they're probably not the best place on what should I expect clinically from this? It's right. Because they're more in the weeds of like, they're like the chemists, right? Like they're, they're really understanding the compounds, the chemistry part of it. I'm an analogy person. So with this analogy, to me, it works. <laughs> but tell me if this sticks. It's kind of like if you went in and you had like an ultrasound and a radiologist saw a tumor. Okay. Radiology, and maybe they do a biopsy and they're like, you have a tumor. It's a tumor. Okay. You're not going to go and then have the radiologist construct your treatment plan. They spotted the thing. They identified it, risk or no risk. And your oncologist or your doctor is the one that's going to now clinically apply that. And so it's important to have both. Like you can't be so zoomed into the chemistry part and the clinical part. Like these have been separated out for a reason. So if I'm understanding it correctly, the pharmacist is really there. Yes, they're going to be able to speak to any of those side effects that could pop up or whatnot. Like that is their job is to look at the chemistry component of this. But how that works clinically, whether you should go on or off or blah, 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 whatever the thing is, that is where you want to talk to your actual doctor, right? Your psychiatrist yeah. or your specialist. Would that be a fair comparison? I think that's fair. And different pharmacists have spent different amounts of time in clinical settings. So again, it varies, but they're very good at what's possible. Right. Which, which again, is fruit for wildly obsessive thoughts, right? <laughs> Fodder, um, it is kinfin. Kin they're sometimes less, less great at giving a good answer about what is likely. Yeah. What yeah. should really be considered. They're a fantastic resource for like, hey, can I break this med or can I chew this med or do I like what timing of this med? Uh -huh. Like that stuff that like they're going to know more than me and often better than me. And so like the makeup that put together the, the what's possible, but yeah. how much weight this one possible side effect in this specific person's condition that I just spent 90 minutes with and they've only met for two minutes. Right. Yeah. It, better conversation with your doctor well and it's interesting too because i was i just had this thought i haven't thought about it this way before but having moved here from la there are a lot of people in la and so there are a lot of prescriptions and you can think for yourself how many prescriptions am i on if i'm not none let me think of my parents and prescriptions are they on especially as we just look at age and maturation here and so in L.A., I'm likely not going to know the pharmacist. I might see them as a repeat, but there's millions of medications and millions of people and millions of clients. Now, where I live now, there's like the three pharmacists that work at this place, and I may always go to this place, and I'm on how many medications or somebody in my family's on this many medications. So I end up feeling like I know them a little better, right? Because, hey, Bob, how, how's this? My last name is Morris. 
my oldest son's name is Jack. He's on a stimulant and he's on an SSRI for his OCD. So every time I go in to a particular pharmacy with a certain pharmacist working, he's like, Jack Morris, do you know that that's the name of a baseball player? I know that now because I know this pharmacist. But that's a different level of connection. And if I'm going to see him multiple times a month between everybody in the family's medications, I feel like I know this person more. So it really speaks to my leaning into I have this connection here. It's not that the pharmacist doesn't have good information and they can tell me whether this cough medicine could help with this or is going to have an interaction here. They can look up whether there's gluten in it, which you might think, like, who cares if there's gluten in it? You care if you have celiac, which I do. And so they're great for that. And we can have conversations about baseball players. But (laughs) at the same time, they're not going to know not only what I'm prescribed this medication for, but all the other things going on for me that may or may not be the reason why this specific medication over another one was chosen. But you would. You would as the the specialist. And so having that conversation with you is where we are applying the meaning. What does this mean for me beyond basic chemical reactions? Yeah. It's important to talk to the right person. So, yeah. But I think maybe that could be a part of it, especially in these smaller, more remote areas where you're like, I know Bob. He's one of my (laughs) customers, you know. And you're speaking to a way that it would be ideal for the system to work, right? Like local op and people know each other. And my dad is a family practice physician in a small town and speed dials the pharmacist directly multiple times a day and consults them and right back and forth. Like that's fantastic. The bigger the city, the bigger this increasingly like automatized health system you're in, it's a lot harder to do. With OCD patients, I'll say one thing that's helpful is if I'm going to go to above normal doses or above FDA maximum doses for, let's say, Zoloft, right? There's an FDA maximum based on the approval of Zoloft for depression, but we know we often go above 200 milligrams in OCD in some patients. I will tell them, hey, someone's going to flag this. They're going to say, are you sure? Is this unusual? Or just tell them we've already talked, move on. You don't need to go down the road like this is for your OCD. On the prescription I send when I can remember, I will try to put super therapeutic dose for OCD based on literature or some note in the prescription so that the pharmacist is less likely to wonder, freak out, scare the patient, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good piece. So there's that communication piece that can be so important. And I think like we all, we get used to it. My kids are growing up in electronic age and so they have to use their iPads for school and different things like that. And so, We know some of the workarounds sometimes we're going to have to do because this didn't let me do this because I wasn't on the school grounds, but I'm supposed to do this reading and I have to get into this app and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, so you learn these workarounds sometimes when the system's going to flag it. Just because the system's flagging it doesn't mean it's not something that you need to do or that would be important. And so the system is created for a reason and there is that check and balance for a reason. But also that communication of like, hey, they probably mentioned the flag. And that's fair because generally for the general population, this isn't what they're dealing with. But we're dealing with what you're dealing with. We're trying to help you, not not just anybody, right? Like we're dealing specifically with where your struggle and your distress is. And so this for you is what I'm prescribing. And even if they flag it, it's kind of like learning to work around that firewall on the iPad or whatever. Sometimes I got to do it. Sometimes that's going to be needed. So I think that's a really, really important point. 
as we're talking about some of the side effects and things that pharmacists can bring up, and I'm sure that you have this brought up with you too, can we talk about some of those black box labels and some of those side effects that folks can, especially when they think about taking medication, this is probably one of the biggest things I hear. There can be warnings that this medication can make you suicidal. There are these really scary warnings, not unlike anybody who's ever probably had to take prednisone and they're like, oh my gosh, all the bad things that could happen. They're like, but probably won't. Don't worry about that. It's hard to be able to shake off a warning, especially if you're thinking about for your child. My child is depressed. My child is dealing with a lot of OCD, but I don't want them to be suicidal. This medication could make them suicidal. So can we speak to the black box warnings? and how to really approach and conceptualize why they're there and how we should think about applying that to our situation. Yeah. And in, in the box warning around suicidality is, I mean, is a little controversial. People have dissected it and looked at it in different ways, and you can read all different perspectives on that. But generally, the understanding is that it applies to people under the age of 24. And if you look older than that, but I believe it's until 60, it's sort of equivalent. And then actually over 60, there's actually less risk of suicide. So it is just very specific to, to younger people. And importantly, people reported more thoughts about suicide to a provider, mm-hmm. not attempted more suicide or achieved suicides or anything like that. So we're talking about thoughts. Again, if we go to the specific population with OCD, right, this is sometimes already happening, ego dystonic thoughts about what if I did. And even just the fact that it's a possible thing now might even make that happen. So and and why that happened, like whether the med caused it, whether in some of these studies there was actually a population of patients who had bipolar disorder, because that is the age range where it can sometimes come out. And maybe those patients that were on that spectrum maybe reported that more. Maybe this was a population they're already going in and seeing someone. So you're maybe selecting for a different level of severity and the fact that you're asking all these questions visit to visit makes them feel more comfortable to share what was already happening to some degree. Or There's all kinds of ways you could wonder about how that came about. But yeah. yeah, the important piece being it's about thoughts, not actual increased actions. It's commonplace in that younger group to often see someone. And if you're not going to see them to do some version of a check in within a week or two of starting them, and yeah. I, it's probably a more conservative approach than often needed, but it provides you a, a touch point. So I'll try to do that if I'm not going to be seeing them like again via an official visit. I'll often just schedule like a five to 10 minute phone call about like, is it going well? Did you have any of that stuff? Is there anything you need to ask? Yeah. Yeah. That's so that's how I approach that. It most of the time is not happening. Overall, it's not terribly common. I mentioned earlier, when you start SSRIs, sometimes the first few days, you feel more anxious and restless because you have serotonin receptors in your brain, your gut, your spinal cord, and they're all like, I will say to patients, they all get a little tickled and that can make you feel a bunch of ways and increased anxiety and restlessness when you're depressed or when you're worried about what if I did whatever, maybe that's why some of these thoughts pop up more. And so if someone is coming in already having some of those intrusive suicide type thoughts, then I'll mention the label even often more so. And hey, this might happen. This might pick up again. If it feels really different, let us know. If it feels like it's more than what it's been of just a thought about what if, let us know. Yeah. And if it's on the radar, you're more likely, whether you're the uh, the doctor or the therapist and the family, to have a safety plan in place. So that can be monitored along the way. One of the things we talked about previously, you and I, 
is too when you're on an SSRI and sometimes in a space where the noise, the intensity around what you're thinking, what you're feeling is so big that sometimes you may have already had underlying thoughts of maybe no specific plan even per se, but of I wish I were dead and this was going away and I didn't have to deal with this anymore, right? And so what can happen sometimes too for folks is as they start getting the benefit of the serotonin support of that uptick there, they might get some more energy. They might be getting out of bed where they weren't getting out of bed before. They're taking showers again. They're able to engage in more of those activities that they used to be involved in before. And so sometimes folks will talk about, sometimes even very publicly when a public figure has died to suicide, people will say and remark, but they were doing so much better than they have in such a long time. And it's like, yeah, they have more energy to fall through with things that are going on for them. And so if they had some underlying feelings and they were motivated in a space where they really wanted to consider that, but they had no energy to consider that, also having the medication support helps them have the energy to fall through with everything. And that includes, unfortunately, sometimes suicide. But at the other point, too, you made a very important distinction, and I think this comes up a lot and it should come up a lot in conversations around OCD, because sometimes it is suicidality. Sometimes there is that ego syntonic desire just to not feel what they're feeling anymore, and that might manifest in looking like suicide as an option. But also, Sometimes, oftentimes, within OCD, within the harm subset of OCD, we can also see these egodystonic thoughts where the last thing they would ever want to do, ever, is to even think about committing suicide, let alone doing it. And they had maybe an image or an urge or a thought about, what if I killed myself? What if I drove into this tree? What if I took this bottle of pills? And it's so distressing because it's not what they want to do. It's egodystonic that they start to really feel a lot of distress. That is OCD. That is different than suicidality. And certainly suicidal ideation, thoughts around suicide and harm OCD can show up together. But also if there is this air of the hell I want to do that, like I, it's so terrifying, then that doesn't sound like what we would consider true suicidality. That sounds like OCD. Right. And so having that distinguishing difference, because that's going to show up a lot, sometimes even on our partial or inpatient hospitalization units, right, where there is a really egodystonic thought or feeling around harm to self or others. And they're terrified because they don't want to do that. And now they're hospitalized with all the people that do do that. So I must be one of these people. I'm here. I mean, and so can we talk a little bit more about that? Because because that's a tricky one. Yeah, it's a problem. I've had several patients, whether it's egodystonic, what if I harm myself, or what if I stab my mother, or POCD or pedophilia OCD related stuff. I have had multiple patients come in and say, this other psychiatrist either threatened to hospitalize me or said that if I brought this up again, they would have to tell Child Protective Services. Or This is like horrible to hear because it's completely just missing the diagnosis. 
So yeah, I mean, it's a really big difference. The, the, if you are terrified of the very idea of a thing you might do, but don't want to do, it's very unlikely that that thing will happen. As opposed to someone who's really at the end of the rope, it really feels like it's the only way out. They're imagining that they could do it. There's a part of them that wants to do it, even though maybe there's some ambivalence, right? And of course it can be complicated and you can have both. But right. I think to the thing you're bringing up, this is where communication and, and getting other people on your behalf can be really helpful. So if you're the therapist and they're going to a new psychiatrist and definitely if you don't know that psychiatrist or, or whatnot, right? Like some preemptive message, email, phone call, a letter that the patient brings with them saying, hey, here's what you're going to hear. This is how we formulated it. Just as a heads up, if you haven't seen it much or, you know, however you want to notify them. If a family member can come in, I will often have a parent say, yeah, they say that we're not worried they're going to do anything at all. They've been talking about this in this context with their therapist as part of their OCD or whatnot. If they present it to the emergency room or if they're going somewhere else, sometimes depending on the situation, it's nice to call and say, hey, they're actually here and this thing is important. They might need help with. Don't get lost in this whole spiral over here because it's not a thing we're concerned about. Because, yeah, like as we, we've already said, so many providers in different parts of the system aren't very experienced in picking that apart. Yeah, I'm actually going to be working with our local IOP, which is intensive outpatient for anybody new to the community here or partial hospitalization and inpatient about building some awareness. Not that they're not dealing with suicidality and homicidality. They're dealing with a lot of different things over there. But a lot of times... I get clients coming out of that that have had such traumatizing experiences. And maybe CPS was called about something that never happened because it was this fear of what if it did. And you you look at the layers of trauma, the hospitalization, having somebody come out and assess your safety to be around your kid. It's terrifying, right? And so it can be really, really hard. Yeah. Thank you for that. Okay, guys, I don't know about you, but time has flown by for me. And I'm really just so grateful to Ryan for all of his time, his insight, and his warmth. Am I right? Seriously. Like I said it earlier to Ryan, but I'm sure most of us that have interacted with psychiatrists at any point just wish their doctor was thinking and sharing so mindfully with them, like the way Ryan has shared with us. And what I would say to that is I bet, I really do, I do bet more psychiatrists than not do function and do do this work because they believe in what they do and they want to service you. They want to provide for the mental health warriors, including OCD. So whether they are able to show it or not, I do believe they have your best interests and health in mind. But like we said, you have to build that trust, right? And as I highlighted earlier, that really does go both ways. It's the doctor instilling confidence and support, showing that they're listening to you and also providing evidence-based feedback and support. But it's also us, fam, our stance, our openness or lack thereof to even a conversation. And you know what? Sometimes it may feel like that's a privilege sort of thing. Like you don't know our family's story or our community's background of unethical treatment or terrible abuse of power in the name of research. And I hear you. I see you. I validate why our stances are rooted where they are. I'm not dismissing your experience. I'm not dismissing history. I'm not dismissing any of it. 
But I am saying, if we want better representation or improved trust, then that also requires something of us as well. And maybe that's just having a discussion about what we believe and why. So for this intrusive thought segment, which is my application segment of the show, I want us all to think about how we think and feel about medication, particularly when we're considering medication for our mental health. I want you to consider having a conversation with your family or maybe even your boo over dinner. Ask your mother. Ask your child how do they feel about it and ask why. There are no wrong answers. This is part of our story, part of our understanding, and practicing these conversations even with each other can help when we want to have these conversations with important people like our medical providers. It gets easier the more we practice. But also, viewpoints and stances can change over time. I know my stance changed before I started an SSRI for my anxiety and OCD and after. But often, even between generations, we can see some big shifts in all sorts of ideologies, medication included. Sometimes we realize how we're more similar than different. So it starts with us, fam. Before we even get to the idea of a doctor visiting a psychiatrist or even talking with our general practitioner, are we able to have these conversations with each other? Because if we can talk about this at home, then it gets easier to talk about. It gets easier to advocate for what we believe in, and it gets easier to open ourselves to learning more, trusting more, and feeling more hope. So who can you talk about this with this week? It doesn't mean you have to schedule a medication appointment or do anything other than recognize what thoughts and beliefs you bring to the table. And then come back and join us next week as well, because Ryan and I discuss so many more aspects of medication or even health conditions like insomnia and their effect on our mental health. Plus, we're going to be hitting those hot topics like psilocybin and more. So have a great week, fam. Have some chatter about what we've talked about today and come back because you don't want to miss out on this conversation. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah this family like talking about meds with a doc that has crit that's right i went there and you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com